You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Share a Slice with Sean. So on this program, I am just over the moon to invite back John Law. Now, John Law is one of the co-founders of um, Burning Man. Um, Most listeners probably know what that is. But he also has a long past in the San Francisco art scene. And in really, he is one of the members of some legendary groups in the area. One was the uh, Cacophony Society, and the other one is the Suicide Club. And that's one thing that we're going to be talking about today. Now, the Suicide Club, that came from the Communiversity. Um, movement back in the 1960s. And so the group actually was more or less a secret society, and they were known for their stunts. And really, it was sort of an outgrowth of the community where people were invited to challenge and open up their levels of comfort in the world. And really, it was a self-expansion kind of situation going on. And I guess the best way to learn more about it is just to listen to John Law now during this interview. It is an interview that is slightly longer than previous interviews, but believe me, there's just no way I could cut it any shorter than this because everything that John has to say is just absolutely fascinating. And... um I'm really surprised there's no movie that was made about it. But then, of course, I'm not sure if a movie could actually do any of it justice at all. And just a special note that the Suicide Club is actually um, based on a novel. I got this part out of the original interview. It has nothing really to do with suicide itself. So no one, it wasn't a some kind of crazy suicide pact situation. So uh, without further ado, let's get right in on the conversation about the Suicide Club with John Law. The free university movement was influenced by the free speech movement, which started at Berkeley in 1964, Mario Savio and that whole deal. And it was based on uh, a very loose thing because it was there were several different iterations, actually dozens, if not hundreds across the country. But a very basic, very loose description of it would be that uh, some u- university administrators um, from major schools and also some smaller ones at that time, uh, I think in part of the uh, in part because of the uh, student unrest at the time. So these genuine uh, uh, administrators who really wanted to try to make a connection with students thought they would, um, you know, uh, delve into the uh, experimentation of having a free university or free school. The whole idea of free education, you know, there, there are whole sorts of underpinnings to that. I mean, our public uh, American public uh, school system comes out of all these different philosophies from the 19th century and later uh, in European uh, education um, concepts and philosophies as well. With that said, uh, the free university movement was, you know, was kind of a new thing in the 60s and, and like say a response to you know, a way to try to engage students at a time when they're pretty pissed off for a lot of good reasons. Yeah. And yeah. And so, um, so, uh, SF state had one, one of the very earliest ones, uh, starting in 65, uh, right after the free speech movement and sort of kicked off this whole thing. 
And then uh, that lasted for several years, and then it ended in 69 or so. And uh, then in 1970, uh, they started another uh, free university at SF State. It was called Community as we said. And uh, so they, they would have student administrators, who uh, one or two of which would have a small stipend uh, at that time. And then uh, the, the university itself gave them a small, like a Quonset hut on the campus itself where the uh university administration could could work and then four or five people and all these volunteers up to maybe who knows how many 100 volunteers at different times would help uh, put together this class calendar uh and uh arrange to have these free classes some of which took place on campus in university facilities others of which took place off campus and uh and uh the main points being that the classes there were there were no money exchange. The the quote unquote instructors, some of whom were, you know, uh, ex- experts in their fields, others of whom were just you know folks having fun, and a whole range in between, could list uh, whatever class they wanted to. They didn't charge money for it. People would come uh, if they were interested in it after reading it in the class calendar, the catalog, or hearing about it some other way, and take this class for free. Uh, my interpretation of all this, after many 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 years, decades actually after it started and after reading a lot about this and being involved in later iterations of the free university movement, my take on it is that it, it was really a way of, of people just interconnecting really much more than an educational tool. And it, certainly in the long run with community, I think it was much more of a social uh, organ as opposed to a, a serious educational tool, although people were did learn stuff from the classes they took. To give you an example of some of the classes, uh, you'd have, uh, you know, VW repair. Uh, conversational French, you know, conversational French, um, you know, uh, clown makeup, yeah. uh, theoretical physics, you know, uh, various uh, touchy-feely kind of new age, uh, 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 um, uh, what do they call those things, encounter groups, which is a big thing in the 70s, uh, you know, uh, off-campus uh, uh, explorations, like nature walks, uh, where the where the instructor was maybe an expert in the flora and the fauna of the area you're walking in. It could be anything. Basically, you could list anything as a class, which is what was kind of the, and it was free. And those are the two things that were that were unique and really cool about this whole thing. So um, community went on for some time. Uh, and uh, around 73 or so, a fellow named Gary Warren, who was a, a undergrad at SF State, became the uh, chief student administrator for community. And uh, he had some really bizarre ideas and some really, Peculiar ideas, and I think he saw university as a platform for uh, experimenting with his concepts and philosophies around human interaction, around uh, the the idea, the concept of exploring uh, individual creativity, collective, collaborative work with other people in order to create uh, your own environment, your own uh, uh, world, as it were, to some degree. And he had big ideas, and he saw this group as a way to implement some of these ideas, and course there are other people involved and they had their own ideas about the community as, as a as a vehicle for creativity so um but anyway gary uh and and a handful of other people uh rick lasky rick kerrigan um later uh kathy hardy and shirley sheffield and then later adrian burke and, and david warren were kind of the, some of the principals in the community group around 1976 community which is being run run by these you know you know experimentally inclined students uh they started getting in some trouble with SF State, you know, because SF State was a university, you know, and they have to yeah. 
stick to certain stick to certain standards from their point of view, right? So and 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 Gary and the others were allowing and in fact encouraging weirder and weirder quote unquote classes. Okay, uh, it, it, very experimental in nature and including uh, proto urban exploration stuff pranks and uh, 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 ongoing, you know, sort of very uh, involved pranking. And there was a, so SF State started, you know, SF State started getting kind of annoyed by, annoyed by this because they get some complaints. And this all sort of culminated as, uh, from, from what I can tell, and this is right before I got involved with all this, this would have been in 1976. My involvement began in uh, 1977. They had a class called Pie of the Month Club, which is a wonderful <laughs> event. And as this class, uh, what you did is you signed up for it, and then uh, you you had to write down a fairly in, in, involved uh, uh, history of when you personally could be assassinated and when you could not. For instance, uh, if you were uh, if you had a job somewhere, and if you were assassinated at your job, they'd get pissed off and fire you. You would say, "Please don't assassinate me in between the hours of eight and uh, and three p.m. Monday <laughs> through Friday." So. And then if you were, like, say, a student lecturer and, and you really didn't want to get pied in the middle of a student lecture, you'd say, please don't pie me during these hours while I'm working in a student lecture. Or if you didn't want to be pied at home or whatever, assassinated, excuse me. So so and then and then uh, there was a lottery that was drawn through some, uh, you know, through some arcane fashion that uh, has been lost to history. And, uh, and an assassin would be chosen uh, uh, at random and secretly and a, and a victim would be chosen and no one knew which was which or who was who. And so, so this created an intense uh, period of, of uh, paranoia for all the people involved. And then <laughs> stories would start stories would start popping up about the the student who went to dinner when her parents were visiting and was having dinner and and uh, at a nice restaurant and a tray came out with a with a dish under glass and the waiter pied her. It was a setup that had been and her parents were in on it. <laughs> so it's like uh, a, another it's like a secret Santa but with assassination. Exactly. And you were pie. You got hit in the face with a pie. And pies were a big theme in this in university and later in the early suicide club. So pie fights were a big thing. Uh, oh, the other thing, a big influence on these groups, uh, particularly the later of the suicide club, were uh, silent films, Buster Keaton, uh, Fatty Arbuckle, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Pie fights in particular were very popular. Uh, at any rate, so there were a lot of pie fights going. So anyway, this went on for a couple of months. An enormous amount of paranoia was generated. It became a mythic event that was talked about with great, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, fondness. However, at the same time, it really started to piss off SF State. And I think some other things happened. I think they did like a streaking event or, an, you know, some kind of nude event that got a lot of alumni pissed off. Several things happened. And so SF State started giving a hard time. So at that time, it was relatively easy to take your weird group and make it into a 501c3 nonprofit school or organization, which Gary Warren, Kathy Hardy, Shirley Sheffield, uh, you know, Rick Lasky and some other people did. And so they took it and they moved the community off campus and into Gary Warren's tiny uh, low rent bookstore uh, uh, called Circus of the Soul Books, which is a little place right on uh, uh, right on Judah at 10th. And this is where I became involved in this group because I had been in San Francisco. I was really young. I, was, I had just turned 19. And my old friend, uh, Ron English, uh, not Ron English, so Ron uh, Unger, who I'd known since childhood, um, who happened to be there. And he, he was the one person I knew when I moved out here. He had been involved in community university and he was teaching some psychology classes and 
and uh, uh, what else? Uh, uh, some other some other things like like hikes that he was doing his classes, and he he kept trying to involve me in community because I think he was worried that I wasn't uh, being properly socialized, and you know I was just sort of hanging out and hiking around, I wasn't really meeting anybody, you know, as a new San Franciscan. So you know, looking out for me, he kept trying to get me involved, and I uh, you know I'd read the community calendar and I'd see oh tofu making and. Uh, you know, like VW repair and conversational friends. Oh, that sounds cool, but not really my bag. And so I never went. So then several months later, you know, another uh, calendar came out. And he goes, look, I think there's this uh, class that you'll really like in the, in the community university calendar. And we, we, at the time we were roommates. Um, we lived on, uh, we, <laughs> we lived on uh, Leavenworth and Pacific on Knob Hill in a $200 a month apartment, $200, wow. $200 a month apartment. <laughs> and uh, I'm just throwing it in there just to, you know, put it, give you a little bit of context rent here. prices these days in San Francisco. Yeah, that's correct. And, and, you know, honestly, at that time, $200 was not cheap. I mean, that was a nice apartment, and that was like, okay, we can do it. You know, we can, we can afford that, the two of us. Uh, so anyway, so we're in this apartment, and he showed me the university calendar with the write-up for The Suicide Club as – a class in university and I read it and that two or three paragraph write up was so overwhelmingly, it, it just spoke to me directly. It's like they, they were claiming to do, they're going to do all these crazy things, climb into abandoned buildings, do street theater, you know, infiltrate and uh, spy on Nazi bars and, you know, and, and uh, you know, just like crazy outrageous things. And it was just exactly the sort of thing that appealed to me more than anything else I'd ever heard of in my life actually at that point. And I just started la- I remember I started laughing. Ron and I, we had no furniture at that point. We just got the apartment. We were pretty broke. We had really nice new carpeting, and it was a nice apartment. And so I'm literally lying on the floor in my room with no furniture, and I read this thing, and I start laughing and screaming and rolling back and forth across the floor. I thought it was so funny. And Ron's just kind of leaning in the doorway, grinning at me and you know, you know, rubbing his chin because I think he found something that he thought would really appeal to me. So anyway... So he tells, so then I ask him about it. He goes, well, these guys, uh, David and Gary and Adrian, this gal, Adrian, they, they're kind of the people who are putting it together. And if you want to meet them or find out about it, you could, Gary has a bookstore and he told me where it was. I got on the in Judah street car, went out to the inner sunset neighborhood, got off, went there. And I, and remember I'm a 19 year old juvenile, like reformed juvenile delinquent, really into extreme adventure stuff. I wanted to like, you know, Ninja wasn't in the common parlance at the time wasn't in common usage, but that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like, you know, an adventure guy sneaking around, you know, being, you know, exploring and doing whatever. I did it on my own. I climbed things on my own. I was just into climbing. So I was very excited to meet these people. I had this, I had this incredible idea, this vision of what they might be like. And of course, I, I just, I figured they'd be like big strapping dudes and, you know, like a Valkyrie like, chick, you know, yeah. like, a, you know, like, yeah, with, uh, you know, rappelling in. Claude Van you know, Damme like, type yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme or whatever, or Dirt Claude Goddamn, as a friend of mine calls him. But anyway, <laughs> so I had this, like, fantasy idea of what these people would be like. So I go in this, I, I get off the streetcar, I go to the, and there's this little dingy little hole-in-the-wall bookstore, kind of dirty looking. And, you know, I, I kind of look in, and I kind of walk in the door, and right to the left, there's a big, there's a big old school desks. And behind it, there's, like, this kind of, you know, like a kind of slightly overweight, biggish looking hippie dude with like long hair and horn rim glasses and sitting next to him in a big overstuffed easy chair is this like ancient dude. Like he must've been a thousand years old, right? Methuselah, right? Turns out he was actually 42, <laughs> but since, since I was 19 at the time, you yeah, know, 42 might as well be a hundred. Right. And I look at him and I'm like, Hmm, maybe I'm in the wrong place. And, uh, and I ask him, I go, they look at me really funny. They give me this kind of stink eye look and, 
I look at him, I go, uh, I'm looking for Gary and David Warren. And they look at me and Gary goes, I'm Gary. And David looks at me and smiles, goes, I'm David. And I go, ah, uh, and I'm crestfallen, right? I don't say anything, right? But I, and I go, well, I, you guys are doing the suicide club. Is that right? And they're like, yes. And I realized later, as I got to know them very well in the ensuing months, uh, I realized they had a very, both of them had very dry sense of humor and they're sizing me up as new, new meat. Like what's his, who's his kid? I mean, is he going to, you know, is, how's he going to work out? <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, um, so I talked to them and they tell me, well, you know, yeah, the suicide. Oh, and I remember also just uh, another aside, there was a rubber chicken hanging from the ceiling <laughs> on a, on a, on a piece of, uh, you know, like a clothing line or something. And, Gary pulls out a plastic, an orange plastic Playco dart gun. Okay, now these Playco dart guns actually were a big tool that we used later in the Suicide Club. And, you know, there are a bunch of, we use them in, in games and events later. But silly little child's toy, but it looked like a real gun, except it was orange. And he shot at this chicken with the dart and he missed it. And I'll never forget that. It's, <laughs> it's like, like so. It's so metaphorical. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like it was, a symbol. Absolutely. And I thought, well, fuck, you know, and I kind of left. I took the train back home and I'm thinking, I'll, I'll come and I'll check out the, cause they have a, you know, registration for it at the, at the university, uh, garage sale, which is coming up. And, uh, I would, I was going to register for the class and then go on it. I think I'll go on it. You know, we'll see what they, they do, even though I was, wasn't really, my hopes were kind of like uh, diminished. Okay. So then I go to the community garage sale, which is how community would raise money to buy the catalog because everything's free, right? Nobody's paying. Yeah. So the way they raise money was brilliant. And it's something that Gary came up with, I think. Uh, uh, and, uh, what they do is they'd have everybody on their 1500 or 2000 person mailing list. They would request that they donate all their used junk. And a lot of these people were students. So at the end of their semester or whatever, they're leaving, they'd have a lot of good junk. So you get a lot of really good stuff donated to this garage sale. And then they'd have a big sale and, uh, at it, uh, the, the, um, the policy was Anyone who wanted to buy something at the garage sale could pay whatever they wanted to. There was no price on anything. You could pay five cents for something, right? So, so what would happen, and this is a really interesting study in human nature, what would happen is for every like douchebag who'd like give you like a dollar, who'd give you a dollar for like a $200 stereo, which would happen, believe me, for every guy, you know, or gal who would do that, you'd have like 20 or 30 people who would give you five or $10 for something that was really not worth anything right. financially. So, and that system worked brilliantly. We would always raise the seven or $800 that was needed to print the catalog and mail it. So but anyway, I go there, I sign up for the event and then I come back, you know, like a week later for the event. So this is in February of 1977. Come into the book, Circus of the Soul bookstore. I'm in there with, uh, you know, like 45 or so people. And it's a teeny little place. And Gary uh, had, he showed movies there on Sundays. Uh, the Fantasy Film Festival is what that was called. And so he had all these pillows, like a pile of pillows that he stashed on top of the bookshelf. So when he did an event where people were in there, he'd throw all these pillows on the floor and everybody would just lie in there in this giant human mass, which was pretty, you know, pretty cozy and pretty cool. So we're all in there, like lying on the ground on these pillows. And uh, Gary and Adrian and David, uh, David wasn't there. That's right. Gary and Adrian, gave, I think, gave the talk about how the event was going to go. And it was uh, the first initiation. We were all blindfolded. Okay. And, and they made these special blindfolds so you couldn't see out of them. I think they used like kind of cookie dough and wrapped them in like, in, okay. uh, you know, in uh, cloth and then tied it. So you literally couldn't see anything. And, uh, and so, and they, and they made us swear that we wouldn't try to look. That was part of the deal. And, uh, and then we were put in these cars 
driven away somewhere we I know not where all around. We got out of the cars. They had us get out of the cars carefully and all hold hands in line. So here's 45 people blind in line, holding hands, led by a handful of people up this hill in, you know, complete blindness. And, and it's a sand hill. I could tell from, uh, you know, from just, you know, walking in it and I can smell the ocean. So I know that we're close to the ocean. Yeah. So go up the hill. This is going on forever. And the thing about it is when you, when, when your sense of sight is taken away and especially when it's been a couple of hours, which it had been at this point in time, because logistics never a strong point for the group. It took a while to do some of this stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah, we got better at it, but in the beginning they weren't very good. And, uh, and so we were going up this hill and the woman uh, I'm talking to, the woman on my right hand side who uh, I'm holding hands with, right? I didn't know who she was. I'd never met her. I didn't remember seeing her earlier. I don't know what she looked like. And, but her name was Catherine. And, uh, we were getting a really intense discussion along the whole way and like really like, oh my God, what's going on? This is so amazing. What a great thing we're doing. Wow. Where, where the fuck are we? And so, uh, you know, we became quite close, even though, you know, in this instant, this incredible human bond came about, you know, uh, because we were, you know, in this intense situation. So walk up this hill, it takes quite a while and because there's a lot of people. And at one point they had us go over this some kind of like weird bridge or something over what seemed to be a chasm. And they said, look, while you're going over this, be very careful. Don't lean too far <laughs> forward. Don't lean too far back. Stay right in the middle. Okay. And be very careful. And so we went over this. It turns out later, much later, I found out it was just a big beam lying flat on a parking lot. Yeah, I was about to say. Off of it. Right. <laughs> but in your mind, I literally, I was like, oh my God, where are we? You know, like it really created this image in my mind. Maybe I was gullible, but you know, maybe other people realized it wasn't something like heavy like that, but it was very, it was pretty amazing. So we get up on top, on top of this hill and you can tell because there's wind blowing. And then we go into what's clearly an underground chamber, a concrete chamber. You can smell it, feel it. The sound cuts off completely. It's muffled. We're all inside. We can hear the echoes of ourselves talking. And we go, we're, we're, we're walked deep into this chamber. And the images in my head are like, oh my God, are we going to fall through some gaping hole into some, you know, deep pit, you know, down into the netherworld and Lovecraftian netherworld or what? Right. And we just don't know. And, uh, so we get in the, finally we get way the hell in this underground chamber, which turns out, well, I'll tell you what it was later, but so I'm still with Catherine and all, everybody's, you know, can hear people talking. And earlier they had given us packs of matches, you know, for this, just this moment in time. And so we whip out our packs of matches. We're still blind. Oh, they, we took our blindfolds off. A booming voice came out and said, okay, take off your blindfolds yeah, but now. It's right. pitch dark, right? I mean, right. It's still pitch dark. We can't see anything, right? It's totally pitch dark. So we all whip out our packs of matches, which. <laughs> which the organizers had torn out all 19 matches, leaving one match per book. So we, so for about maybe 30 seconds, you could see little flashes of light all around the room and then total, total darkness again. Right. I mean, I got one quick look at Catherine who, you know, was really hot looking, but anyway, um, I, did, I had no idea. And, uh, that certainly wasn't a criteria for suicide club events, but you know, uh, so we, um, so then we're still in the darkness. So she and I work our way out. We can hear people all around. We work our way out. We move towards a point of light that we see off in the distance, a little teeny, teeny point of light. And we get closer and closer to it. It's this gray square. And we get closer and closer to it. It gets bigger and bigger. And we, you know, it's the, the perception of these visual landscapes at night after being blind for so long is really bizarre and surreal. I can't even explain it. But it's like you don't know what you're looking at. And it could have been. That little point of light could have been 100 miles away or it could have been 20 feet away, right? There's no way to tell. Turns out it was about 200 feet away. Mm -hmm. We walk towards it, slowly creep towards it. We get closer. 
there's a figure standing in the middle of this square of gray light in glow in flowing uh, robes. That figure walks away before we get there. And then we, we, we come out of the entrance and it turns out we are indeed at the ocean on these giant cliffs above the ocean in one of the most spectacularly you know, visual locations in California, really, Fort Funston, looking out over the uh, Pacific Ocean in an old military bunker. And so we're wandering around and people kind of collecting around. And, you know, there's like there's about 45, 50 people here. And then I see this figure, this looming, really huge figure in a, in a cape and a crazy head headdress walking towards us. And I'm like, whoa, who the hell is that? And earlier I described David T. Warren as being kind of like kind of crippled up looking old guy with a cane. Right. And it's David Warren. And he's just got a total, totally different visage. And he has this very uh, theatrical voice because he, he had been a carny and a street performer, a fire eater and a, a magician. And he has this booming voice. He goes, now gather around me. We're going to perform the ritual of life and death. You know, we're like, and it's this goofy ritual, right? But it's super profound in a, in, a, in a weird way because of what we've just gone through and the location. And your senses are just, my senses are just wide open. So we all gather in a circle around this guy. And he's in his crazy, like, uh, you know, uh, weird fantasy get up. And he starts doing a fire performance. And he's like, he touches each, he has us hold our hands out. He touches each of our hands with a flame from his little flame thing. And then he uh, does some other stuff. And then he he, ha- he passes around these bottles that are marked life and death. Right. <laughs> it's like and a some, ritual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's this crazy made up ritual. So he does that. And, uh, and then he and then he does a, he ends the whole thing by blowing this giant like twenty foot flame out of his mouth and it was mind boggling <laughs> and so I'm like I'm hooked man that was like that was the coolest thing that I've ever been involved in my life and I immediately joined you know I was already a, I was already a member because I'd gone on the initiation immediately started organizing events uh, and within within a month we had done like fifteen events in the first month and my first event came the second month second or third month uh, yeah second month which is a, uh, the first ever Suicide Club sewer walk that we did. And uh, that was my first event at organizing. And that's all I did for the next five years was organize crazy events in the Suicide Club, urban, ex- urban exploration events, infiltration events, street theater events, you name it. I worked on it. I either did, did an event or, or my friends did one and I helped them with it. And so the format of the Suicide Club, which was truly brilliant and which was uh, designed by Gary and Adrian, was uh, that um, anyone in the group could list any event they wanted to in the monthly newsletter that was mailed out to everybody. Uh, it, there was, everything was free, um, with the exception of exact exact cost that the, the organizers might have. So, for instance, uh, you know, you had to pay like fifty cents uh, every six months or whatever for postage. That's you know, how long ago it was. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and if and if people were doing an event and they had out of pocket cost. They would ask if people would contribute, you know, and it was usually not, not more than a dollar. I, I don't remember ever spending more than a dollar for, for an event cost. So it was free. You know, the actual, you know, what you're doing is free. Anybody could listen to an event. It could be anything. There were no rules and regulations. And the newsletter that was mailed out every month was made by the people in the Suicide Club. And the, ro- the editorship of it wasn't controlled by Gary or Adrian. It was rotated. Everyone was expected or encouraged, at least, to edit the newsletter at least once. So you would have some that were graphically quite nice. I mean, this is all cut and paste editing. I mean, literally paper with scissors and glue. And then you would take it down to, you know, like a, a print shop. And actually later we had our own printer, a Gestetner printer. We print stuff up on that. 
Um, that's another story. But so um, so they designed this organization to not be an organization, but to be like a confederation of people creating whatever they wanted to create. Um, the 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 treasurership also rotated every four months, so nobody controlled what little tiny money came in to pay for the newsletter. So it was literally like a non-commercial free organization, which is a radical concept in our culture. Free anything is like community being free. It's like, especially nowadays when everything is a commodity, literally everything is a commodity. Yeah. It's so, it flips people out and people don't understand it's free. Oh, what do you mean it's free? You know, where's the catch, right? So I got into that and I just kept organizing events over and over, whatever we could do. I, I was particularly into climbing stuff and in urban exploration. The Suicide Club became best known, and it was a secret society, so uh, we weren't as uh, we weren't on the public radar that much. But for people who knew about it, it was best known for uh, uh, bridge climbing. We climbed, we figured out how to climb the Golden Gate Bridge, the Bay Bridge, and then later on away trips to New York and other places, we climbed other bridges. Exploring tunnels and abandoned buildings was huge. Uh, the Suicide Club was one of the earliest groups that actually self-identified as uh, an. an uh, uh, urban exploration group. As a matter of fact, the first time I ever heard the term urban exploration, because it was not in the popular lexicon, uh, the first time I heard it was from Gary Warren in 1977, describing what we were going to do. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that he coined the term, but I literally had never heard of it before. Um, so uh, it was just an incredible font for creation and creativity. And the people in the first year was really, it was a great group right to the end, but the first year was really probably the most astonishing simply because most of these people did not know one another or didn't know one another well and we immediately dove into doing the most intense things you could think of together <laughs> like you know and th there wasn't although there weren't any hard and fast rules regulations with the group there simply weren't there were suggestions and uh and there was an atmosphere and what what came to be uh, a subculture that was being created that we were creating that later years and decades later had a huge resonance on other uh, much more much more uh, known events and cultures and subcultures, but you know at the time I mean there were 100 150 people at the height of the suicide club involved in it. It was a quiet group. We didn't uh, although in the first year there were a couple of articles about the group. After the first year we uh, we um, discouraged all press because we didn't want it. We just wanted to experience what we were doing and not we weren't doing it to get attention. We also didn't want to get bad attention that would bring. Right. Uh, the attention of the authorities and they might fuck with us or shut us down. So we um, did away. You know, we, we literally uh, turned down. We turned down uh, Mother Jones magazine, sent somebody they wanted to do a piece. Another writer, uh, uh, a diarist and a historian wanted to do a book on the suicide club. We turned them down. We said, no, we don't really want to. We don't we don't want to support that. Um, Bob Guccione's We magazine, which is his uh, second magazine after Penthouse, which some people might remember. They wanted to do a piece. Uh, the local papers um, were interested at certain points. And so, uh, you know, this went on for some time. There there were a couple of exceptions. Um, and one of the uh, above ground uh, uh, groups or, or events, creative uh, uh, cabals that sort of came out of the Suicide Club and ran concurrent with it was, uh, there were a couple of things. Uh, there was the uh, annual, uh, an event that we did annually, we started to do annually called the Chinese uh, New Year's uh, Treasure Hunt which took place during the Chinese New Year's uh, uh, treasure hunt, uh, the Chinese New Year's parade in San Francisco, which is a huge deal. Hundreds of thousands of people come downtown and the dragons and the fireworks and all that. So Gary Warren and Rick Lasky invented this event in 1977, and they made the treasure hunt through the course of the this incredible like event going on, you know, 
and uh, they they would hide clues all across a parade route. So the small groups of ten people, you know, maybe a hundred people would come on this event. The small group I mean, it became one of our most popular events and, and a repeat event, um, which wasn't typically something that we went for repeat events. Most were one offs, but there were a couple that became annual. This was one. Uh, they would be running across this parade route in groups of ten. It was very exciting, and you weren't supposed to do it really. And uh, do this incredible treasure hunt, ending up in a pie fight. <laughs> what, do, what do you and, mean by what do you mean by treasure hunt? I mean, were were there things planted along the parade parade yes, route? There were clues. Yes, there were clues hidden along the parade route, including under sewer caps, on billboards, <laughs> in in the in the mouths of concrete lions that were you know right, girding Chinatown. one of the buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. any place, and they would pick really creative places for the uh, for the clues. Now this event went on annually from 1977, uninterrupted until now. I mean, the Suicide Club ended in 82. Uh, by that time, you know, uh, a, a fellow named Jason Wechter had taken over the uh, uh, the treasure hunt. He had been a Suicide Club member, a very creative dude. And he kept doing the events. And then he eventually, it eventually morphed into a, a very different event, a much bigger event, ongoing to this day, including thousands of people. Jason's a noted private investigator, and he does this event kind of on the side. And they raised tens of thousands of dollars for local charities by doing the uh, annual Chinese New Year's treasure hunt, which started in 1977 as a suicide club event. So that was an ongoing uh, event. Another one that we did was the annual uh, Golden Gate Bridge Dinner. And in order to illuminate how, you know, just your regular club member could do an event uh, and was encouraged to do an event, Catherine, the woman who I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> she wanted to do a suicide club event in the first couple of months. And she had never really organized an event or done anything where she had to like organize people. And she thought, and she didn't really know what to do. And she thought, well, my birthday's coming up. And I always wanted to do, you know, like a crazy birthday. And she thought, well, Suicide Club, we're kind of identified with the Golden Gate Bridge. Why don't I do a potluck dinner birthday party on the walkway, the pedestrian walkway, the Golden Gate Bridge? And so she did that. She listed it as an event the first year. And, you know, probably 30 people, maybe 25 people came the first year. And it was formal dress because formal dress was a thing in, in the Suicide Club. And uh, and and then it became an, a, an annual event. And that event went on for over 25 years before the authorities finally shut it down. We were starting to get, you know, it, it way outlived the Suicide Club. Let's put it that way. Uh, and, it, and it is ongoing for years. And they finally shut us down. They wouldn't let us do it anymore because there were literally hundreds of people going onto the pedestrian walkway of the bridge. You're, and, uh, you're allowed on that. I mean, that that was public space yes, there. I that's mean, correct. That's this why was it was above board. Correct. It was an above board, technically illegal event. The only thing that we were doing that was maybe illegal was a, a public assembly that was too many people. And, and you know, like, uh, they, I mean, let me give you an example. Like, we did it many times. I did it. I, I missed a few, but over the years, I went to many of them. I remember one time fencing with my buddy Robert Rogers from Portland. Uh, who's an early Suicide Club member, and then went back up to Portland. And we were fencing dressed up in full uh, uh, formal dress along the walkway. And we didn't realize it. Later, a friend of mine told me they were listening to the radio, and the traffic was backed up in dozens of miles in both directions. <laughs> and the, the radio reports were traffic stopped because two two men in formal dress were, were fencing on the or sword. Sword fighting was what Sword said fighting, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so we had no idea, right? So, yeah. so this is why the authorities finally shut us down. Uh, ultimately, right? they they didn't understand. I mean, they're those those fencing rapiers or whatever you call it, they're not really you they're know, not swords. Kill someone with that? Um, no, pretty but, unlikely. But I mean, uh, uh, speaking of the Golden Gate Bridge, you guys 
did as well. Like you, you, you did a few things sort of uh, covertly, like uh, oh yeah, entire yeah, dance, yeah. dance. What was it like inside the cable oh, houses? Yeah. Right. Well, we did several events. The Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge were playgrounds for us at the time. We were very uh, clandestine. We didn't let people know. I mean, aside from the bridge dinner that I just described, all of the other uh, contacts with the with these superstructures, these amazing, amazing, uh, you know, uh, structures were clandestine. And we climbed the bridges starting in 77. The first time we climbed, we did an official uh, climbing, bridge climbing event was the Bay Bridge. And that was in uh, September, I think, of 1977. And then I listed climbing the Golden Gate Bridge as an event in 78. We had already climbed it several times. And there's a lot of stories here. I mean, I could go on and on forever. But uh, to make short, uh, make, make a long story short, um, so we've been, you know, we climbed the bridges and then the, the, the event that you were referring to was a much more elaborate event. Now, if you look at the Golden Gate Bridge on the north, uh, I'm sorry, on the south side of the bridge over Fort Point, which is the old uh, military reservation built there in the 1850s and 60s, there's um, a giant archway that supports the roadway as it leads out to the suspension portion of the bridge. This uh, archway culminates on the south side in these two giant concrete pillars that support the roadway. And they're about 170, 180 feet tall. And you can get at the top of them by climbing over the railing of the bridge and onto a catwalk underneath the sidewalk. And there we rigged a rappel, 180 foot rappel, down this concrete chamber into the cable housing of the bridge. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with bridge engineering, cable housing are these giant, massive concrete boxes, really big. I mean, they're big as a block. And that's where the cables, the big ass cables come in and then the cables split up into individual cable strands. And they're all anchored into these massive concrete blocks that are, you know, that are uh, secured in the in the ground there. And so you're in this room with like hundreds and hundreds of cables splaying all over the place, this giant ass room. And so we'd repelled into the room. And this is before the days of like terrorists and well, extreme terrorist fears and security overreach and all that sort of thing. And so. There was very little security on the bridge. There were a couple of cameras. We knew where they were. We avoided them. So you could just rappel down this giant shaft and open the door on the bottom, <laughs> right, and let in as many people as you wanted to. And there's just like a little fence that you could kind of go around. So we did an event in there called Portals of Illumination. It was organized by me, uh, Mark Northcross, who later became an investment banker. Uh, actually, I take that back. He was a, a bond salesman, a municipal bond salesman. Uh, and uh, Judy Haight, who, is, uh, who became uh, uh, a counselor, like a family counselor. So it's just a broad range of people in this group. And so uh, the three of us, and with the help of others, organized this event. We snuck in about 50 people blindfolded into this massive. They had no idea where they're going, right? Literally no so, idea. So you repelled down the bridge with these people on with blindfolds? No. Okay. No. Okay. No. I repelled down. Mark and I repelled down. And we opened the door at the bottom and brought all of our stuff in and all of the people who were performing the event. Okay. So the only ones who repelled down were the two of us. No, you, we didn't take 50 people blindfolded <laughs> and have them repel. That would take about 20 hours, yeah. I'm just guessing, from, the, from my experience of doing this sort of thing. Yes, you could do that, but we did not. We brought them in. We walked them in blindfolded, and they had no idea where they were, and were pretty shocked when they realized where they were and uh we had, we had devised this in this enormous this is one of the most elaborate events we ever did so i'm sort of describing it most of the events that we did were much simpler you'd you know you could go see a movie with your people from the suicide club and then go for a walk on the beach and talk about it that could be an event 
So it went from really simple to really elaborate. So brought people in. We had uh, Carla Wood, later Cleo Dubois, who was an exotic dancer who was in the group, who did this exotic snake dance. Mark Northcross had these crazy light show, hippie light show things that he did, which he projected onto the uh, onto the cables. We did a, a treasure hunt, like a like a like a kind of a weird game hunt inside the cable housing. It was a huge building, huge structure, and people so people were running around looking for clues inside the structure. So it was a very elaborate, long. T- you know, it took quite a while for the event to to take place. And so this is just a you know by way of describing one of the more intense and extreme types of events that we did. Um, we did uh, several events in the in the Bay Bridge cable housing on Yerba Buena Island. And I'd like to point out, this was in ni- this was in the 1970s and early 80s. The statute of limitations has run out on this shit a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For any for any law enforcement people listening to this, uh, and uh, and we also had a the, the other great thing about the Suicide Club, and one of the things that that really made it stand apart in so many ways is that the core philosophy of the group, once again, not a set of rules that you had to follow, but just sort of a you know suggestions and 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 a, and a basic concept and philosophy that people tended to adopt was simply that, you know, we, we would not trash the places we go, we'd go into. The whole leave no right. trace philosophy, now rubric of Burning Man, started in the Suicide Club. That's where it came from. The whole, like, we would go into abandoned buildings that were fucking abandoned, right? And we would do a big event, and we'd have a potluck dinner, and we would carry our trash out and put it in a dumpster. That's how, that's how you know, fanatic we were about not altering the, envi- the environments that we went into. In, in downtown, uh, in downtown LA, also, um, you guys went into the Bradbury Building, right? That's the one, uh, right? Many in, years uh, Blade later, Runner. Many, many years later. That's correct. Uh, yeah, that would have been in the cacophony days. That would have been in nineteen okay. eighty eighty nine. That's right. And um, that was completely abandoned, but. Uh, I mean, there was still just stuff all over the place. It was well, an urban explorer's uh, actually, dream. Actually, to be, to be exact, to be exact, it, we didn't go into the Bradbury building. We went into the Million Dollar Movie building, which is right across the street from the Bradbury building. Oh, okay. We looked, the Bradbury building was closed when we were there. It was on the weekend and it was, it was locked up. But we peeked in and we looked at the interior. But the Million Dollar Movie building, which is also in the movie Blade Runner, okay, it's a scene where, uh, you know, he's, uh, I mean, the marquee flashes past and they use other, other exteriors of the building. Um, that's the building that we snuck into. And it was, wasn't entirely abandoned. The theater was still running, but above the theater was like a six or seven story of, uh, office building or five story, I forget. And that was partially abandoned and sections of it. I think there were still a couple of, uh, occupied, um, units on the lower levels, but the upper floors were completely abandoned. And this is many, many years later to qualify this story. Uh, actually, fuck, it was like 88. So it was like 10, 11 years later. Um, and in a different group, the Cacophony Society. But we right. in, we ended up finding this abandoned office that people just walked away from it, and it was the uh, it was the movie studio offices of Harry M. Popkin, P O P K. And if you look him up, he was a producer of many B film noirs in the fifties. Best known one being D O A, which was uh, starring Edmund O'Brien and set in San Francisco, by the way. And uh, so he, we were in this, and it looked like they just walked away, leaving the doors open and the windows open. It had been raining in the window, and all their movie posters and all this other shit was lying around. And it was just like walking into a, a dream or something. It's hard to explain. And uh, so that you know, just totally abandoned building, you know, totally or largely abandoned building. And uh, so I mean, but that was like you know, like say a later iteration. So back to the Suicide Club. So. You know, uh, this whole concept of like, 
leave no trace. And Gary actually, because what we did is we learned from the events that we did. And the, the really interesting thing, one of the interesting things that, to me is just how amateur and completely clueless we were when we, when we started. But we kind of knew that, right? We would do events and take ideas that we had no idea how to do it. And a lot of times we were inspired literally by fiction or by movies or by, you know, just what we, you know, memory in order to, to figure out uh, methods to uh, uh, to uh, fulfill, you know, or to work out these events that we wanted to do. I'll give you an, an example. And that would be a lot of this time, a lot of stuff that we were doing required going into abandoned buildings. Now, we never broke a lock or kicked a door in or never broke into an abandoned building. Uh, if you do any urbex stuff, they call it urbex now, and we call it urban exploration. But uh, if you do any of that, you'll realize that most people in the field, not all, because there's some assholes, but most people in the field are pretty good about uh, not what's called burning locations, not trashing locations, or even letting people, other people know where they are. Many people are pretty tight about that. Yeah. So, um, and that, and that's also, I'd like to think, and actually there's some, uh, there's a lot of, uh, 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 you know, um, circumstantial, uh, uh, references to, to say there's some truth to this. The Suicide Club had an influence on that through, uh, Julius Solis, who was an urban explorer who, uh, worked with Ninja Licious, who was a guy who was kind of the point person for, and like the guy who actually kind of codified and, and, uh, kind of set the parameters for urbex back in the late nineties and early two thousands before he died tragically very young of, uh, I think it was cancer, but at any rate, and so there's a direct lineage there. And so I think that some of our philosophy might've had some small influence on the later urbex fields, but regardless, um, you know, we would go into these buildings and not take or, you know, break or, you know, I mean, I would find a way to climb in, to climb the building often on a, a standpipe or, you know, fire escape or whatever. And abandoned buildings, nobody's watching them, right? Nobody really cares that much if it's really abandoned. You know, it's like, yeah, it's illegal to go in there, but it's kind of a low-level illegal. So if you couldn't, we we just believed if we couldn't find a way to get into a structure, it's kind of like we lost in the building one. But there's almost always a way in. I mean, big complexes, they'll have street caps and, uh, and, and uh, you know, metal street grates and whatnot. Sometimes you can get in through... Uh, through underground chambers. Other times, you, if you can get on the if you can get on the roof of a big abandoned building, I guarantee there's a way in without breaking a window. I mean, it's just almost impossible not to be something. So we would go into these buildings, and uh, so what happened was like I could climb a wall because I was like a 19 year old rock climber, right? This dude Pierre and Gene Mashovsky was another good climber. There were several of us that were good climbers, but most people in the group were not climbers at all. Couldn't climb anything. So to get them into a building, we had to figure out how to do this. How do you get them in? You have to get up in the roof. So because we had never trained as climbers, we weren't, you know, like uh, we later learned, you know, vertical caving, which helped us uh, a lot with our climbing technique. But regardless, in the early days, we, you know, we weren't technical climbers. We weren't, uh, you know, doing it, you know, as a, you know, con constantly. So we, what we did is we, Gary and I were talking about, well, let's build a rope ladder, right? Because we had seen rope ladders in the movies. Yeah. Like, uh, like Tarzan and the Green Guy. Right, right. They got a rope ladder in there, right? Well, we'll build a rope ladder. That's how you do it. So I went to Dave Warren's house and we spent, you know, a couple of afternoons building this rope ladder. I tied two, you know, two uh, ropes on his rooftop and we, uh, David cut up these wooden slats, hardwood slats with holes in them, a bunch of them. And then we would drop them down. I'd go up on the roof and drop one down, tie a knot, tie two knots, drop another one down, tie two knots. And we made a friggin' rope ladder, right? And it was about maybe 30 feet long. 
it rolled up 35 feet long, something like that. It rolled up in this giant wad that weighed fucking 80 pounds. It was, <laughs> it was the dumbest thing you've ever seen in my I mean, it was, you know, it was well made, but it was the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life. But we didn't know any better. So we used this rope ladder to climb. I would climb up a wall or Pierre would climb a wall, drop a rope. We'd pull the rope ladder up, tie it off, and people would climb the damn thing. And it, we used it for about a year before one of the things we did uh, in the suicide club, one of the types of events that we do, we, we called infiltrations, where we would find some weird group, either a religious group, a political group, or a social group, or, you know, in this case, well, some of the examples would be the Moonies, which was a, the Unification Church, this weird Christian cult. We went, you know, went with them for two days to their country retreat. Uh, yeah. The American Nazi Party, who we corresponded wow. with and yeah. met met at barbecues and then went to a rally Bar- that they were doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, these guys. And, and this shit was like the Suicide Club wasn't necessarily at all about fun, although a lot of the events were fun and some of them were specifically designed for fun. Many of them were not. The, the club was about expanding your horizons, right. working inter- interactively, collectively with other people, collaboratively with other people. And really pushing your fucking limits. I mean, that's what it was about. And that came from Gary and Adrian and their, their philosophies around this sort of thing. And so, um, so you know, uh, I sort of lock, lost track. where The we're rope ladder here. there. Yeah, yeah. So the rope ladder. So so um, we use it to sneak into these buildings. And then later, oh, that's right. We, oh, right. So an infiltration, and this is a very funny story too. So Gary had an interest in caving, okay? And uh, which is natural limestone cave and, uh, and other types of caves. And uh, I had done caving earlier when I lived in Tennessee as a teenager. So I was in caves too. And we talked about it a little bit. And so he ended up joining a group called the National Speleological Society or the NSS. And this was a group, a nationwide group uh, of people who went caving. And they don't call it spelunking at all. The cavers call it caving. So there was a local chapter, which was down in Palo Alto. And they met in the basement meeting room, a rented meeting room in a big bank right down on University Avenue, downtown Palo Alto. So Gary went to him and Adrian, Gary, and then I think Judy paid, I can't remember, it was Gary and somebody else went to a meeting to check them out. And then he listed it as a suicide club event. Like, okay, we're going to go join the NSS, the local grotto, they call it. And we're going to kind of see what they're doing. And in his write-up, and this is, this is a very funny, funny thing. He described uh, what his take on the uh, on these on the cavers. He said these people are really nice people. They're all kind of professional. A lot of them are professionals. A lot of them work for the U.S. Geological Survey. That's their day job, and they kind of go caving for fun in this in this uh, you know amateur group, the NSS. And uh, and so he says they're all you know a lot of them are you know like a kind of you know suburbanite types. And he's being a little bit like uh, you know a little yeah. like kind of city snooty, right? He goes, and he describes them as kind of yeah, they're kind of like rigid body types, but they're really great. I like them. They're really cool people, but they're very, you know, kind of rigid body types. It's stiff. Type, right? So, yeah. And this is this is in the newsletter write up that we all get. So we're like, hey, whatever. We all go. A bunch of us go, like probably about 10 people go. and We pretend not to know each other, which, of course, they figure out, you know, by the second time we're there that it's just, you know, like, what are, who are you? People all know each other. What the fuck's going on? Right. And over the years, over the next couple of years, the, the two groups ended up kind of intertwining with some of the cavers getting more into the suicide club than they were in a caving. And with a handful of the suicide club people going off to do like serious expedition caving in Australia and South America and shit like that. So it was a really successful joining of these two groups in a, in a certain way. And I got to know these like hardcore cavers, many of whom were scientists at the U S geologists at the U S geological survey for their day job. So 
what happened is in later, after we're all friends, some of the cavers like uh, Kathy Williams and Bruce Rogers and uh, John Tinsley and some others, they're, they're looking through the old newsletters and they see the, the original write up about infiltrating the NSS. And they're, they're reading this and they're like, so we never heard the last of it, right? Gary never heard the last. Oh, rigid body types, huh? Oh, kind of <laughs> suburbanite. Right. So I, mean, I just told that story to kind of give you an idea of how this, this, this group kind of interacted in the world. Um, yeah. So you could do you could do anything in the Suicide Club. That's what was really, truly, I wouldn't say unique, but certainly rare and very powerful about the group. I, I was looking at uh, some of these, like, uh, you know, because it does seem to really be about expanding your your boundaries. And one could argue that the original Communiversity, too, like, was a, I mean, there, there's sort of a, a take on education. Maybe it's a, like a dead poet society take or something where, like, you know, the ultimate, I mean, education is really there for you to not find a freaking job, but, you know, actually, <laughs> right. it's not a, right. it's not training school. A university is supposed to be a place where you, you know, it's the Epicurean experience where you, like, actually expand yourself. That's it, the uh, original liberal idea of educational institutions. Liberal, right? yeah, liberal education. I mean, uh, part of the expansion, though, was, uh, I mean, I heard in the interview you, you did earlier, and I'll put some links to that, too, actually, you were talking about how the climbing thing didn't really freak you out so much. It was really uh, another uh, uh, thing oh, you did, yeah. the naked cable car, I think it was. Yeah, right. really yeah, kind of yeah. skewed you out. If you, I can tell that story if you want. Yeah, yeah. So, as I pointed out, and hopefully it's coming across, people in the group, a big part of it was to challenge your personal fears, right? So, Many people in the group, most people I would say in general, they're not familiar with climbing, right? They're not familiar with being at great heights and unprotected zones. And uh, now the type of climbing that we were generally doing in the club, although there were some exceptions, was we climb urban structures. If you look at urban structures, including the Great Bridges, you know, they're they're made for like, you know, like kind of middle-aged guys to climb around, to, to move true. around in. To There's service. ladders everywhere. Yeah. And the middle and the middle aged guys that do this kind of work, I now know a bunch of them. They're not they're fit guys, but some gals, but uh, but uh, you know they're not you know they're not like uh, super duper rock climber like guys. You know they're not face climb. They're not most of them aren't Yosemite face climbers at all. So they're built for people to climb. And so we knew this. I knew this because we'd been exploring them. And so taking a group of like basically generally fit. Young people, I mean, most people in the suicide club were in their were in their twenties or early thirties, and taking it, it was, you could totally do it. And the whole concept, people will say things like, "Oh, I have a, a agoraphobia," and right, what they don't understand is like they really don't have a, a agoraphobia or whatever you call it, which is a fear of heights. That's a, a phobia. That's a that's like a mental disorder where you like become paralyzed if you like look over look out a window. Right. Most people who say that they simply don't understand that they've been taught from childhood to be afraid of heights, right? And there's a good reason for it. Because if you're up at a height and you do something stupid, you fall down and die. <laughs> so there's a, right, there's a reason for it. But with that said, you know, you don't have to be afraid of heights. You should be afraid of falling, not heights. They're two different things. So taking a group climbing up the Golden Gate Bridge, it's absolutely doable. You can do it reasonably safely and you climb the bridge. So these people who did that, many of them, they most of them probably climbed the bridge maybe only once, but I guarantee that would have been full, you know like way over thirty five years ago now, over thirty years ago, and I guarantee that every single one of them, when they cross a major suspension bridge or you know a structure like that, it, it crosses their mind. It's like I did that. I was up there. 
So this is a life changing thing for a minute for many people, right? It's like, wow, I could just do that, you know, and it's a it's a big deal. Challenging your fear, finding out that, oh, in fact, I'm not, you know, phobic. I just, you know, and I, and I could do that if I have to. Maybe I won't ever do it again. You know, I mean, one guy, Don Heron, who's a prominent member of the group, and I'll tell some stories about him later. He, he did some of the really great events, uh, some of the great theatrical events uh, and, and street street uh, performance events. But he uh, described he's a writer as well, a noted writer. He just later he, he, he's, he described climbing on the Golden Gate Bridge, which he did one time. He said. Now I know what gut-wrenching fear really means. <laughs> but he did it. He did it, you know, and, and it was a, you know, for him, it was a life-changing moment. So for me, right, I wasn't afraid of climbing. I wasn't afraid of heights at all. I mean, it didn't even bother. You know, I'm afraid of falling, but I would never put myself in a place where I'd fall. And people think I'm a daredevil, but I'm actually quite conservative. You know, I'm, you know I don't, I'm careful about how I do things and always have been, and I look out for other people as well. But the stuff that's frightened me and the thing that frightened me, one of the things was uh, embarrassment, social embarrassment, right? Because I was raised middle class, and there are just certain things that you simply don't do if you're raised middle class. And one of those things that you don't do if you're raised middle class, you don't get naked in public, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's a big no-no. And this, remember, this is the 70s, right? And we're still, you know, 60s uh, philosophy hadn't taken hold of large parts of our culture yet. And so... Nancy Prussia, one of the founders of the group, um, had always wanted to do, had always wanted to get naked on a cable car. Nancy had a little bit of a, a uh, little bit of the exhibitionist in her. Great gal, really, you know, a uh, uh, powerful uh, woman, perform, uh, you know, uh, uh, personality. And she, so she did as an event, let's get naked on a cable car. So about 30 people showed up. She, uh, about half of us spent the night in her apartment, uh, sleeping on the floor, you know, crammed in there. We got up really early. And the idea, in order to escape being shut down or whatever, because we didn't know what was going to happen, right? We had no idea, uh, was to go early, get on one of the first cable cars coming out of the cable car bar right. on Knob Hill, and then go a few blocks. And we, this is one of the only events in the Suicide Club that was fo- officially photographed, where we had yeah, three I saw the photo there. Yeah, right. It was the only one where, and and their postcards were made out of it later. <laughs> so this became one of the best known Suicide Club events. People saw this image who had no idea what the group was or who did it, but they've seen the image. So we get, we got on there We're and, and I'm literally sweating bullets. I'm like, my stomach is tied in knots. I'm fucking, I'm really upset. Oh my God, how am I going to do this? Uh, and I was, uh, I was, uh, Nancy and I were dating at the time and she was like, kind of, you know, uh, you know, like kind of trying to reassure me like, ah, it's not that big of a deal, whatever. And so we go out there in our rain jackets and our dashikis and <laughs> like with no clothes underneath, we get on the cable car, we go three, four blocks. We take off all our clothes, you know, stop. And the, the cable car gripmen and brakemen, they just like, they've seen everything, right? They're in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And they're just like checking out the girls and like they stop the cable car and they, the gripman goes, whenever you're done, let me know and we'll keep rolling. And so we just, we kind of pose, do a poseathon, you know, like <laughs> in the middle of the street with a cable car. And then, uh, and it's like, it was like, I, I went from being like having a, a total stomach ache, like literally, going to throw up like doing it and i look around and the gripman they don't give a shit and there's all these little chinese ladies walking to their early morning you know like jobs and their businesses and they never even they didn't even look at us you know it's like oh what are the crazy hockey's doing who cares right and so i realized it was a it was a it was a a pivotal moment in my life as silly as it might seem and as and as as not dangerous as that instance you know that that particular activity might seem because for me 
I did something I could never imagine doing. And it totally changed my way of looking at things like radically. It allowed me to become, you know, the, the voluble, some would say, uh, bloviating speaker that I now am. You know, it allowed me to do performance and be not not as self-conscious about, you know, uh, being in, a, in, in public or being a performer, which I don't think I could have. Done. I was quite shy as a young man. Right. Very shy, which no, nobody nobody has met me recently would believe that. But it's true. And so it, it was a it was a brilliant thing for me. And so that's it was in way of illustration. I'd like to give a couple of other examples. Uh, Bill Costura, who joined the group a little bit after I did at the time, he was probably in his early 20s, 23 or 24. He had dropped out of college. He was kind of listless in a way, not really doing much. I mean, he'd been a dishwasher and just like hadn't didn't hadn't really picked his career out and didn't know what he wanted to do. So he's in the suicide club, which he loved. Like he totally got into it. And he really loved the abandoned building events, right? We'd be sneaking in all these abandoned buildings. So he loved the building so much. He started studying the buildings and reading about them and going to the library. Right. And he right. was a very studious dude, right? He was a very sharp, studious dude. So he, uh, he started learning more about them and then he got really interested in them. And then eventually over the years, he ended up writing. His particular interest became Russian Hill and he became probably the expert on the architecture of Russian Hill, which is a very interesting historical locale. And he ended up writing home treatises on these, you know, million dollar houses. And he did a little, had a little side business where he would contact, you know, the millionaires who'd buy a house and go, Hey, oh, okay. if you're interested in the history of your, then he, and he makes course. a really nice, beautiful pamphlet with photos, histories going about who the architect was, what was there before, the Indians who used to, you know, like scrape their shells there. I mean, right through to the modern day. And he did that for a while. And then out of that, he ended up becoming a, a architectural historian. He was appointed to the Landmarks Commission by Mayor Frank Jordan in the, uh, I guess, the late 80s, uh, the 80s. And then uh, he ended up becoming a historian for Caltrans. So his entire his career was initially inspired by and informed by this is, you know, illicit activities in the suicide That's, that's inspirational. That's like those oh, yeah. hackers, you know, who get hired by uh, security firms later on. At least that was the Absolutely. case in the past. I don't know if that yeah, happens these similar. days. Yeah. Very similar. And so a couple of other examples, Louise Jaramilowicz, who uh, also was, uh, you know, kind of like doing the basic kind of crappy jobs and whatever. She was she was very uh, much into costuming and making costumes. She did that for just for all these events. She made costumes for different people at her own cost or people would give her a couple bucks. And and that and now right now today, she makes costumes for the San Francisco Opera, for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence as a professional costumer and got into it through that. And uh, the other there are a couple of other examples. Um, there are two guys uh, who uh, were really interested in detective uh, or there are other people, but two guys in particular who were really interested in, in detective fiction, uh, Don Heron and Jason Wechter. And Don, very early, he joined the club the same time I did, like in the beginning. He um, loved Dashiell Hammett, who was a San Francisco author and later a New York author who, who invented the hard-boiled detective genre. He, his character, Sam Spade, was the first hard-boiled detective. And he's a brilliant writer, uh, one of the great American writers. Don was a fanatic fan. And so he's in the Suicide Club, right? And so he thought, well, you know, I like Hammett. I mean, he liked him so much that he literally moved into an apartment on Monroe Street that Hammett had lived in just to, to live in this, at that time, a flea bag apartment. So he started doing these walking tours. He called them the Dash Lamont Walking Tour in 1977. And concurrent with that, he did uh, several, uh, on, on to the early 80s, he did several incredibly elaborate costumed gangster detective events on the streets of San Francisco. And, uh, and uh, 
over the years, uh, uh, you know, the, and the, you know, the detective games were amazing. We got dressed up in like zoot suits and had, you know, plastic, you know, orange guns and would like kidnap people and tenderloin apartments and really elaborate, uh, elaborate, elaborate games where the lead characters would develop their, their character over a period of time, take their character either from fiction or from the real world or just make up a character out of whole cloth and kind of create their own dialogue as they went along. So, and then, but the, uh, the other thing he was doing, the Dashiell Hammett walking tour, uh, when he first started doing it, he wasn't like a performer. He wasn't a presenter. Uh, and, and he had a lot of information, but he wasn't really a good tour guide at all. But he got much better over the, over time and he got really better over time. That walking tour is happening to this day, 41 years later. It's the longest lived literary walking tour in America. And Don Heron, who's a brilliant, you know, uh, performer, uh, uh, you know, like public speaker now and a, and a noted writer, uh, he, he's been covered by every media outlet you could imagine, uh, for doing these, for doing these, uh, detective, uh, walking tours for the Hamlet walking tour. So he, they, these guys, and then the other guy, Jason Wechter became a, an investigator and ended up, uh, becoming a noted investigator, private investigator, which he still does to this day. Um, so people kind of found their, you know, they kind of found their, uh, uh, a lot of people, not everybody, of course, found their, their way through it's different. Uh, this group. It's different uh, education for different people. I mean, like, uh, some people linked their career to it, while other people, I'm sure, like, even if you left the, the group freaked out, you're, you're always going to have some stories to tell. You're always going to have some experience that you have. I mean, these are strong points, like, they're, they're like, heightened senses and heightened awareness uh you know hyper reality points in your life yeah, absolutely they're they they they, they kind of highlight the the bland everyday you know uh whatever pay your bills uh you know watch the yeah. watch your tv shows eat your dinner uh pay your mortgage kind of situation right sure absolutely that um, was a part of it and it was designed. I mean, it wasn't by happenstance. I mean, the group itself, uh, because it was a co collaborative, uh, confederated effort, um, all kinds of things happened that weren't planned at all or expected. And all kinds of things came up that Gary or Adrian had never conceived of. With that said, though, they literally set out and they embarked on this this uh, mission to create a group that would get that kind of, you know, that would that would be that intense, that would allow people or encourage people to interact on that kind of a level. So I consider the group incredibly uh, uh, successful in the long run. In the short term, it only lasted for five years. And I think Gary felt it was a disappointment uh, in a lot of ways because he couldn't figure out the format to keep to maintain that kind of intensity. And he went on to do other things, the Gorilla Grotto, which is an, a whole nother story, amazing place. Uh, you call it an adult play environment. It was a, a cafe uh, bookstore that he, he ran for a while. And uh, he also did a thing called the Answer Man Newsletter, which was he was a literal uh, uh, figurative as well, uh, proto uh, search engine. Uh, the Answer Man newsletter, which he did, that was the thing he was he was working on last project he was working on when he died, tragically uh, at age 35 of a heart attack, uh, phlebitis induced heart attack in 1983. He was working on a project called the Answer Man and a couple of other projects. And uh, what you would do, and see, this is before the internet. You couldn't go online and fucking research anything. If you want to research something or find an answer to any kind of an in-depth question about history or science, or you had to go to a library, you know, <laughs> you know, like look through the encyclopedia, right? Yeah. It didn't just, you couldn't just find it. Now it's miraculous how we can access information. So what Gary did and the answer man newsletter, and he was angling to eventually get, I think a newspaper column 
and and do this as a, as a living because he needed to make money and he wasn't doing very well in that category. But he did it for long, you know, well, like I, I think he did it about a year and a half. And he did actually get uh, a bit of press attention for it and a lot of interest before he died, tragically. Uh, but you could mail him or call, you'd call him or mail him a, a question. You say, uh, and I'll use the example as I have before of vampirism. Like you could say, dear answer man, is vandal, uh, is, uh, you know, vampirism true? And what he would do is he wouldn't answer the question, but what he'd do, he would go to his enormous files. He collected, he had like 20 file cabinets filled with paper files, okay, like that he collected and cut out new magazines, newspaper articles, and all these different categories of interest. So he'd go through his files. He'd look up the V column, look in vampirism, which he had a big file in vampirism. He would photocopy all the articles, including articles about like, like, uh, psychologists or psych- psychiatrists studying people who are afflicted with lycanthropy, which is a, a, like a mental disorder where you think you're a vampire and you want to suck people's blood. Mm. He would get the histories of, histories of, uh, Transylvania, you know, in, uh, Romania, you know, and histories of Vlad the Impaler, who's one of the, uh, historical figures that, uh, Dracula's based on. And he'd, he'd make this big pile of like, you know, photocopied clippings. And you'd pay him like whatever, two bucks or four bucks or whatever it was. And he would mail them to you. <laughs> so he didn't answer your question, but he, lit- he was literally, he was literally a-, a search engine. He was a search engine. He, he's yeah. like, he's, he reminds me a bit of uh, some prototype for uh, Hal Robbins. Uh, yes, Hal Robbins and Gary were very close friends. And actually, Gary introduced me to Hal Robbins. And yes, Hal Robbins is a, what do they call it? An autodidact or whatever? Is that yeah. The word? That's the right I, I, word? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, That's Hal Robbins. The guy's like a walking goddamn encyclopedia. Gary's memory wasn't as good as Hal's, but his memory was in his 20 file cabinets. Right. Okay. So these guys are, Hal is another character. I mean, who was in the suicide club as well. Um, and, uh, you know, just really amazing people. And they're also like really normal people. You know, I like to say myself included who kind of joined the group and were turned on to these amazing possibilities. Um, and it was just, that's what it was. I mean, I could go on and on. I could tell you a million stories about, different events, the sewer walks and uh, infiltrating the Moonies um, and, you know, whatever you want, you, you pick. I mean, and, well, actually yeah. tell us a little bit about the uh, Billboard Liberation Front, because that's another sort of outcropping of the Suicide Club, the way I understand it. That's correct. Um, well, the Billboard Liberation Front or the BLF, as it's called, was another thing. And it's the only group uh, that came out of this. Uh, and I need to qualify this because there's always the exception to prove the rules. The only group to come out of uh, the Suicide Club and later Cacophony uh, Circles, where we actually we would go up on on billboards and change the messages. So we would, you know, technically this would, would be called vandalism. But however, with that said, it's art. Right. With that said, what we did is we developed a program and this became quite famous and, you know, like uh, culture jamming or billboard circles later where we would uh, we would make pastovers to go on the billboards that could be easily easily removed okay. so we literally try to go to uh, go to whatever links we could to not damage the billboards and that was part of our part of this leave no trace philosophy and there were several reasons for doing that not all of them altruistic one of them was in case of you know potential legal uh complications <laughs> okay that was one reason another one was just uh because we didn't really want to piss off the uh the sign workers we weren't like against yeah them, well, you know? why why and damage so, those guys yeah, and so so the Billboard Liberation Front started in 1977 as uh, okay. So Gary Warren and uh, Adrian Burke did an event called an Enter the Unknown, where we were blindfolded, t- 
taken to an abandoned or like a like a factory building downtown, a, a warehouse building downtown, right on the central freeway. And uh, um, there were 20, 26 people total, including the organizers of the event. And uh, we've been blindfolded. Right. We get there. We get out of these cars and we didn't know what we we're going to do. Like it was, you know, the Internet the Unknown event was an event that anybody could do where you didn't tell the uh, the participants what was going to happen and you surprise them with it. Right. So I did a bunch of Enter the Unknowns. Other people did Enter the Unknowns. Gary and Adrian were doing this Enter the Unknown. In the newsletter write-up for an Enter the Unknown, what you would what you would uh, see in the write-up would be a list of uh, things that you're supposed to bring. Uh, an example of this would be, like for this event, would be uh, Enter the Unknown. Please bring, uh, you know, good, tough clothing that you can climb in, boots, gloves, uh, flashlight maybe, uh, a potluck dinner to share. Uh, and, and ID required. ID required was secret code that would be in the write-ups that meant that the event that you were going to come to was illegal. Ugh. And you had to consider, we didn't say, hey, this event is illegal. We didn't say that. We said ID required, right? Which would tip off everybody in the club like, oh, well, I have warrants. I have active warrants. I don't want to, you know, for whatever, parking or whatever. You know, I don't want to go on this event because I don't want to take that risk. And uh, or they just didn't want to break the law. And so that would let people give give people out. So the people who were willing to take that risk would do it. So this event, we didn't know what we we're going to do. We were trusting the organizers that what we we're going to do wasn't immoral. You know, it was illegal in some fashion. And as I like to tell my young son, illegal and immoral are very different things. OK, there are plenty immoral, of laws. Yeah, that are immoral is something you know what it is and you just simply never do it. You don't do it. Illegal is usually negotiable, right? Yeah. A lot of things are illegal for a good reason, and you shouldn't do those things, right? Some things are illegal for totally retarded reasons, like smoking weed. I mean, I don't smoke weed. I don't even like it. But it's it, it's insane. It's stupid that it's been illegal for so long, right? It shouldn't be illegal, right? Um, driving faster than the speed limit depends entirely on the you know on the conditions in the road, right? But right. it is illegal. So you're always choosing. You're always calculating. So. So with the, with the Suicide Club, it a very, very uh, deeply ingrained moral and ethical sense that came from the main organizers, right? So uh, Gary and Adrian organized this event to, to alter this billboard. There we are on the street with 26 people. And I'm the climber, dude. And Gary had prepped me beforehand. I didn't know what the event was, but he'd asked me if I would be there for sure so I could climb the wall and drop this, <laughs> this retarded rope ladder that we had, right? So I climbed the wall, tie off the rope ladder. Everybody, it takes a while. Everybody, you know, it's in this alley in the middle of nowhere, you know, downtown. There's not anybody around. We climb up on the roof of the building. So we have 26 people on the roof of this industrial building. And we just still don't know what we're doing. We have no idea. We, we just know that the organizers had us carry up these buckets and weird implements. We weren't sure what they were for. So we get up on the building and then we sit down in the middle of this, uh, you know, of this rooftop, blind from the ground. Nobody can see us. And Gary and Adrian describe what they're going to what we're going to do. They say, well, look over here and, and over there on mounted on the top of the building, is this massive freeway billboard be seen from the freeway. And on the back side of that billboard is another similar billboard, but a little bit smaller. Uh, it's part of this a frame structure. And so there's two billboards back to back and they go, OK, we're going to alter the message of this billboard. And I was like, wow, you got to be kidding me. And so we sit there, all 26 of us, and we. We argue for like two hours over what to change the captions to. Uh, you should probably you should probably insert like a photo of the billboards, you know, for this because it, it'll, it'll make it I, much I've, more. Uh, oh yeah, I, I'm on the I'm on the Billboard Liberation dot uh, com website at the moment. Uh, Very good. Yeah. yeah. So you can kind of see 
this is the earliest earliest billboard we did. It's called the Max Factor billboard. So, so we get there and we vote on the captions to change two billboards to, and it takes two and a half hours in the grand San Francisco democratic process. Incredibly annoying, really, like taking a while, but we do it, and we come up with two different captions to change the billboard to. One caption: uh, the billboard said, "Warning." Big red letters. A pretty face isn't safe in this city. Fight back with uh, self-defense. The new moisturizer by Max Factor. And we're going to change it because at that time, the feminist movement is in full flower. And there are a lot of stuff out there that was really derogatory towards women. And this billboard campaign was considered to be really anti-feminist. And it's like, oh, you know, worn a pretty face. You know, you're going to be basically saying you're going to be raped or attacked if you're walking around unless you use yeah. moisturizer. It's that's victim, how, victim blaming. Yes, exactly. And that's how you can interpret it. So that was one of the reasons we were going to alter the billboard so, or improve, I like to say, the billboard. So uh, so we come up with captions. Uh, one caption on one side is to be warning a pretty face isn't safe in the city. Fight crap with self-respect. OK, basically a simple message. I didn't like that message very much. I thought it was concrete and way too strident and just stupidly political, but whatever. The other side of the billboard, however, we changed to say, warning, a pretty face isn't safe in this city. Fight back with self-abuse, the new mutilator, Axe Factor. Yeah, I see that one here. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. So we go through the whole the whole thing. We we have this rolls of paper. We roll them out. We go up and measure the letter. We turn the lights off of the billboard first so you can't be seen as much uh, as clearly from the freeway. We go up. We uh, measure letters. We make the new letters. Make the pasteovers. And we tape them, we paste them over onto the existing billboard. And as we're doing that, um, what happened was, and this is like some of the rules, uh, or not in the rules, but the suggestions in the club came from literally learning what we were doing on our feet as we're doing events. And we would make these dumb mistakes and we would pay the consequences for them. Then we would try not to make them again. Actually, Gary ended up writing a thing that he called the 12 chaotic principles, um, which uh, were basically each one was a, like, here's something stupid that we probably should think about not doing that happened to us when we did this event. And here's the description of the stupid thing that we did and what happened. Right. So one of the rules was like stick together. Right. Like if you're in a group and you're doing something dangerous, like the rule of two, doing something dangerous and stupid, don't do something else dangerous and stupid and stick together. Right. Don't split up. So what happened is two people decided they wanted to go get their camera, which is in their car. And they said, you know, and they said, OK. So they dropped the rope ladder down to the ground, which we had pulled up after us, of course, so nobody would see it. They they drop it down. They go to their car. And while they're doing this, these two people are seen by an industrial guard who only sees the two people. He doesn't see the 26 people on the roof altering the billboard, right? He just sees these two people. He is from a distance. He assumes that they're you know robbing the building, right? What would you think? Well, here's some people breaking into the building. So what do you do? He calls the, calls the cops, right? Yeah. Cops show up. It's 20 feet up on the roof of this building. And by this time, we had just finished the billboard. We were finished with the billboards. We we're getting ready to leave. And the two people had come back, you know, climb back up on the up on the rooftop. And we peek over the parapet walls and like, fucking A, there's like there's like four cop, three cop cars on the ground. Right. And we're like, oh, my God, we're totally busted. <laughs> right. And so then another cop car shows up and another cop car. And then like the cops can't they can't get on the roof of the building. The building's locked. So what do they do? Right. They do it, you know, they call the fire department for a ladder truck so they can come up on the roof of the building, right? So the la- the fire truck shows up with a ladder and a, and some uh, itinerant uh, uh, cameraman, like a like a, a Ouija type uh, independent cameraman shows up, like an ambulance chasing dude. 
with a you know uh, uh, like a big video cam, like a beta video cam, TV grade and and, and lights to to show because by this time you know, he picked up the radio call you know on the uh, police band radio saying there's something big going down at 13 and o- 13th and Otis Street right so he shows up so there's all it's like a shit show it's a total fucking show on the ground right we're up we're peeking over this parapet wall and the people on the ground the cops on the ground still can't see you know up on the roof really. So this big ladder truck ladder comes swinging out over uh, up above us. Um, and the first guys to climb up and over are uh, two, poli- you know, police guys, two cops, right, with their guns drawn. And we had this whole by this time, we had already established a protocol for dealing with the authorities. And the protocol was uh, do absolutely what they're going to say. Don't run. Don't hide. Completely cooperate 100 percent and keep your hands in clear view. And also let the organizers of the event talk to them. Don't offer information. Be friendly and answer their questions. Don't lie to them at all. We were very big on not lying. But also do not voluntarily offer information. Let the organizers of the event, you know, do this. And so Gary and Adrian were the organizers. You know, we're we're all sitting in a big pile, like 24 of us in the middle of this rooftop. And Gary and Adrian are a little bit closer to where the ladder truck is coming up. Cops jump off. The ladder. They're looking at us. They see twenty six people, twenty five people, and a gorilla. I'll get to that in a minute on the rooftop. And Gary and Adrian, a man and a woman. Another thing is like it's kind of disarming to have it like a man and a woman. And since they were both the organizers of the event, they're the ones kind of standing forward to describe what's going on. And the, they go. And Gary says, "Well, you probably want to know what's going on." Here. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he explains the old, old thing to them. And the cops did not know that we altered a billboard. The call that they got was a break-in to a warehouse. They didn't they even were coming notice. Prepared. They didn't even notice. They had no idea, right? So Gary goes, well, we came up on this rooftop to alter these billboards. And the cops look at it and they go, oh, shit. And they see this billboard that we altered and uh, improved, uh, as I like to say. And so they describe the whole thing to them. And the cops, so they call down. And they go, well, it's not like a break-in. They didn't break in the building. They're just on the rooftop. And so and if you know police procedure, it's certainly at that time and how they dealt with things. They, were, they could get pretty confused and not really know exactly what was going on. So a lot of the cops on the ground were still thinking that it was like a simple break-in and that, that they were going to arrest two or three people, right? And the other thing to keep in mind is cops, when they show up, especially on some weird building or like in a place like that, everybody hates them. They think they're going to get shot. They're worried to death they're going to get shot or something is going to happen. So they're really on edge. And if you can put them at ease, as we already were learning the philosophy of doing, uh, I like to call Gary Warren one of the first cop whisperers. You know, if you put them at ease so that they know that you're not a danger to them, you immediately have this little little moment, this little break in time where you can you can impress them favorably, and hopefully, depending on whether you know how much of an asshole they are or not. And most cops are just regular guys. Not all of them are assholes at all. I mean, if you look at the spread, like two percent are psycho assholes. You know, like eighty <laughs> percent of them are just, yeah, eighty percent are guys who just want to do their job and not get hurt and go home and don't really care that much. 20% of them want to save the world or whatever. I mean, that's just an arbitrary breakdown, but you know what I'm saying? They're like anybody else. And so if you understand that and you give them the opportunity to not do a giant shit ton of paperwork for a bullshit arrest that they know they're going to be spending three days on the paperwork for, they'll try to figure out ways to let you go. Okay. And that, which is, which is what happened, right? We're like, well, you know, we also billboard and like, so what they wanted to do, they wanted to card us, which is to take our information, right. hold it for any future potential legal issues and let us go. But what happened was in the interim period, oh, and I have to describe, actually, there's a really funny part of the story I forgot, which I've told many times. So as the uh, fire department ladder truck ladders coming up on the roof, 
I'm wearing, I'm the like 19 year old idiot, right? I'm wearing the gorilla suit. One of the (laughs) tactics, one of the tactics that uh, Gary uh, and others had devised in the suicide club, we had a lot of animal costumes and we would use them on events. Some events that were just animal costume events. Others we'd bring along, like on this one, he brought along the gorilla suit just in case something like this happened. So he said, hey, John, put the gorilla suit on. Like I'm like 19, like, sure thing, Gary, you bet. (laughs) You know, I put on the gorilla suit. So I'm in a fucking gorilla suit. And the cops, as they come up over the over the wall, right, they look at us and they see 25 people and a gorilla. Right so now. it short circuits their brain. Totally short circuits their brain because they can't figure out what the fuck we're doing there, right? They just can't figure it out. So Gary and Adrian use that open space to explain what they're doing, what we're doing. Because they're that's looking like, for okay. answers. I, I see. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's really worked. And it's brilliant. And Gary devised that philosophy. Uh, the other guy I've known in my life who is really good at dealing with this sort of thing was Mark Pauline with Survival Research Labs, this giant machine art cabal, machine art cabal that does amazing. I've worked with them a lot, but they, they're a really cool group. He's very good with talking to the cops. But anyway, so, so in this little period of time, this disconnect, um, they get their story in. So they, they're looking at this gorilla, right? So they're like, okay, so then they, they we're going down this ladder, right? And some people are really happy that there's a big ass, heavy, sturdy, totally safe fire department ladder that they can climb down because they had to climb up this rickety like kind of dangerous seeming rope ladder to get on the roof right remember these are mostly pretty average people they're not climbers right one woman in particular who was really involved in the club kathy hardy not a climber not you know she's overweight a little overweight and and really wasn't happy about climbing that that rope ladder to get up there as a matter of fact she almost didn't make it pierre and i had to help her along the way by climbing the wall alongside her she finally got over the parapet wall was on the roof Probably not a good idea, really, to have her up there. But she was up there. She did it. And she was dreading, fucking dreading with her entire being, having to climb down the rope ladder to get out of there, right? So she was, like, uh, beside herself with joy. It's like, oh, my God. Thank God there's a, a I can climb down this fire department ladder. It's so safe, right? And so she's just, and so, so she climbs up on the ladder. It takes a little bit to get her on the fire, fire ladder. She climbs on the ladder. She's climbing down it. And I jump up behind her. Uh, Pierre, I think, was in front of her. And I'm behind her just to kind of keep close close to her and Kate, you know, kind of help her. And there's these two young cops at the bottom of the fire truck looking up and they look, and then by this time the cops are like kind of laughing and joking. And yeah, you know, Dave Warren had gone down before and Dave Warren has a gimp leg. He also almost didn't make it up the ladder. He has a gimp leg. He gets down there and he's wearing a business suit and he has a cane. <laughs> and this, this guy, this dude who is like the ambulance chasing uh, cameraman, he's filming the whole thing. And David is a total ham. And he sees a guy with a camera and he starts hamming it up like, oh, my God, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. My wife and my children are going to find out. I'll lose my business. I'll... And he's like, totally, as the guy's filming him. So it's, it's just like a, a circus on the ground. Right. And the cops are laughing and going, what the fuck? They keep, people keep coming down the ladder like like a hundred clowns coming out of a Volvo or out of a Volkswagen. Right. And so the cops are kind of like a lot of them are kind of getting in the mood. And so these two young cops at the bottom of the ladder, they look up one of them sees Kathy uh, or sees me in the gorilla suit, right? Climbing down. And he kind of jokingly yells out. He goes, hey, you gorilla, get down off of that ladder. And his partner is at a different angle on the ground. He looks up and he doesn't see me, but he sees Kathy Hardy, this this big woman who's clearly like not happy about being on the ladder. She's only a, a few feet away from him at that point, right? And he looks at his partner and he kind of punches him. He goes, hey, man, can't give her a break. Can't you see she's really scared? <laughs> And his partner looks at him and he goes, no, not her, the gorilla, the gorilla, right? So this fucking guy, this shit, I can't even believe that some of this stuff actually happened to us. It was such a bizarre 
fucking setting. And, and things like this happen all the time, like crazy, like scenarios that you couldn't like make up. I mean, the truth is always so much weirder than fiction. And, and the suicide club was like a real, a marker for that in yeah. my mind. And, uh, you know, I remember climbing the golden gate bridge one time we were underneath it. We had just watched the movie North by Northwest as part of the fantasy film series, uh, fantasy film festival series at, uh, Gary Warren's bookstore. And, uh, we watched the movie, uh, North by Northwest. And then later we went out to do an event climbing golden gate bridge. And I remember being underneath the roadway on one of the giant X braces, looking over this massive cliff face right at Lime Point. And I had this moment of insane, like real life movie synesthesia where it's like I felt like I was in the goddamn movie, you know, where. Right. Where, uh, I mean, you know, like it sounds Eden like a Marie movie. Saint, yeah. I mean, even Marie Saint and uh, and uh, and C- Cary Grant, you know, are like hanging on to the side of the of the cliffs at Mount Rushmore and. uh uh martin landau's trying to kill them right i mean it's like at his last like oh my god and and like a part of the philosophy of the suicide club i think was inspired a little bit by the diggers which were an earlier hippie group in the 60s and therefore they're, they're a group that gave away free food to poor people and they're all about free and yeah. they were based on an earlier iteration of the diggers which were from the middle ages uh which were uh, uh proponents of uh the commons trying to fight the royalty to have commons for people and and food for starving people. So it's a long, long-standing history. So I think the diggers had a little influence on the suicide club. The other main philosophy, other than free stuff for people that the diggers uh, espoused was, uh, live your life as though you're the lead in your own movie. You're the lead actor in your own movie. And I think the suicide club adopted that very, uh, that very, uh, uh edict or whatever, uh, and took it to heart. Cause that's how I think a lot of people in the group felt, you know, like they're living this and doing these crazy things, you know, these are like amazing things you would never think to do. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and so I don't know. That's, that's it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and this has like been amazing. Um, I think I'm pretty much, I'm getting close to being out of time here. Um, oh Yeah. Um, but, uh, we've only really scratched the surface. We've done like, uh, some of the suicide club. Well, we've done the suicide club, I think pretty well. I mean, obviously there's much more in the book about, I guess, about the cacophony society that maybe that's something we can talk another time, uh, about. Um, but, uh, I mean, when it comes to the suicide club, uh, there's so much out there as well. I found a website of the, uh, Billboard Liberation Front, respond uh, establishing a new paradigm in street marketing which is this hilarious website i right. found online yeah, that's, that's our website yeah and uh there, there's also a website about the um about the suicide club and also about the cacophony club and i, I mean i'd love to have you on again to talk about uh the cacophony side society sure. now that i mean uh, just for our listeners we um, John and I ran into unholy hell trying to get the sound quality <laughs> working properly on this episode. So now that I think we have it sorted, now that we have a plan here and we were getting good sound quality, we should be able to maybe have a part three about uh, about the su- about the cacophony society next time. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back on. It's uh, you know I think uh, for me. Yeah, it's like it's great telling stories about the old days and shit that we did back then. But literally, like right now is the time. There's underground groups doing amazing right. shit right now. And our book, uh, Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society, we consider my co-authors, Kerry Galbraith and Kevin Evans and I, I think we really looked at it as kind of a kind of a how-to manual or a textbook. And, 
you know, I, I say people who want to do this stuff, it's like the stories I'm telling, yeah, some of them sound like pretty outrageous and maybe hard or impossible to do from, from where you might look at it. But the fact of the matter is if you get together with people and, and uh, collaborate with another, one another in this fashion, you can do almost anything that you try. And, uh, you know, like living in the past is not what I do. I live in the present, but visiting there and learning stuff from it, I think is a really good thing, which is my connection to the history. Yeah, and um, is how how it might affect people uh, in uh, going on into the future. And uh, actually, uh, it's interesting. I'm just going to maybe end off on this point. Um, is um, uh, I heard you in a previous interview. You were talking about how you you went to San Francisco and how you you're ready to party. You're ready to you know have all these amazing experiences. And you met um, at least one or two hippies, and they and they said yes. <laughs> he said, hey, right. dude, like the party ended like uh, seven or eight years ago, something along That's those right. lines. That's what they told me. And and then you said, you know, fuck you. I'm going to we're going to I'm going to have I'm going to do this. I'm going to live now. We're going to do this. And and what came out, of, I mean, it wasn't entirely you, but what came out of this attitude that, you know, no, the party's not over. Um, no, it's not over. It came out of this was and the never suicide let, club. Never let or, any old person. Right. Yeah. Never let any. Never let any old person tell you the party's over or that their party was better than your party. Yeah. Don't I mean, go to hell. I mean, looking at this myself, uh, uh, and I think that younger people listening to this need to need to realize that uh, they initially, when they see Billboard Liberation Front or they see Cacophony Society or Suicide Club on the web, they might be like, "Oh fuck, it's too bad I wasn't around back then." It looks like such a such a kick. It's amazing. But in reality, there's really nothing stopping them from getting together and, and uh, you know, finding uh, exercises. They don't need to all be illegal by any means. Uh, just finding exercises to expand. To, well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's just no there's no reason not to. And, you know, like I've said, I mean, just don't, you know, I mean, take take look, look at all the stuff that happened. I mean, don't ignore history. Look at stuff that's come before. I mean, we didn't invent any of this stuff. We weren't the first group to climb a bridge or sneak into like an abandoned building. I mean, for Christ's sake, the, you know, the first uh, Egyptian dynasty or the early Sumerians, you know, they snuck into the earlier abandoned, build, you know, abandoned structures. I mean, you know, the Egyptians, I'm sure they snuck into the, the abandoned pyramids from the, the earlier dynasty, right? I mean, we didn't invent this stuff. We didn't invent any of it. I mean, when you get stuff like Burning Man, we didn't invent burning a figure on a beach anywhere, right? We didn't invent this stuff. We, we, we just had our own take on it, our own iteration of that. And I say to people uh, who want to do stuff, it's like, go to the history, find out stuff that er- other people did earlier. You know, the Dadaist, you know, the Situationist, the whatever, you know, the mach- machine artist, Burning Man, whatever. Take the ideas that you find there Make them your own, mix them up with your own ideas, come up with some new ideas, mix it all together and create your own reality. You can, it's totally doable. Uh, it just takes the desire to do it. Um, Amen. And, uh, I yeah, totally that's, that's, agree. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, John, listen, thanks so, so much for being on the show. I mean, uh, I found it fascinating and I hope you'll be back soon. Great. I'd love to come back again, Sean. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's about it for this episode. I'd really like to thank John Law for being on the program. And um, he's already invited to be on the show again, where we're going to talk more about the Cacophony Society. Do do go to the show notes over at ShareSlicePodcast.com. There you're going to see links to 
the Suicide Club website and the Cacophony Society website and the Billboard Liberation Front Society website, rather, too. Uh, these things are really, really super interesting. They actually do good work in a way, sort of uh, culture jamming the overriding narrative of our society and, you know, basically um, working against uh, the sort of dreadful normalization of society that occurs. Um, as always, I'd like to thank the Fantastic Plastics for providing the music for the show. And uh, their Bandcamp page is on the show notes as well. And I'd like to encourage you all to subscribe to the podcast. I, I noticed looking at the stats that only about 30% of you guys actually subscribe. About 70% of the people don't. Uh, I guarantee you that future guests are going to be fascinating. I've got uh, Sister Indica coming on, and uh, she's a drag nun, and she's comes from the uh, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence um, in Sanford. I think it's in Los Angeles. So that'll be fascinating, and just any number of other guests. You really don't want to miss it. So uh, with that said, uh, thanks so, so much for listening to this episode, and please, please do come back for the next one. And uh, until then, have a good time.